Welcome to Do Better Research, a learning-focused podcast about research methods. My name is Dr Suzanne Aubrey, and I'll be guiding you through research methods to become a better researcher, both for academic study and professional practice. In this episode, I interview Mark Saunders, Professor in Business Research Methods at the University of Birmingham Business School. Mark has published widely on both research methods and human resource management, and has also books such as Research Methods for Business Students and Keeping Your Doctorate on Track, as well as publishing over 100 journal articles and book chapters. In this interview, we talk favourite research projects, how many interviews are enough in qualitative research, and some tips and tricks for getting research back on track when things start to go wrong. So Mark, thank you very much for joining me on the Do Better Research podcast. It's great to have you here. And I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests uh, first off, which is, what do you enjoy about doing research? It's a really good question. I mean, and I think I'd start by saying if it wasn't enjoyable, I probably wouldn't be doing it. (laughs) Um, What I enjoy most probably is finding out answers to questions that interest me as one part of it, um, helping organisations in particular work out work out the answers to issues that are troubling them or work out ways to find the answers, if not actually getting to the answers, sort of perhaps through a process consultation type approach. I like working with other people when I'm doing research. So doing joint research, I find much more enjoyable than probably doing it on my own now. And probably the final thing is working out possible ways to answer questions. So sort of four different things, but obviously quite overlapping. So you're really into the kind of the collaborative research process, whether that's with organisations or or other researchers? Yeah, very much so. I think um, with the collaborative processes, you actually learn more. And certainly when you're researching organisations, it's very easy as somebody coming in from the outside not to understand that organisation, which can be very problematic when doing research, but also... It does have an advantage of coming in and not knowing so much. You, you can ask what may seem to be a blindingly obvious question without seeming an idiot. I like that. I, I particularly like being able to sort of approach something with fresh eyes. Exactly. That's a much better way of putting it, actually, Suzanne. <laughs> so what's been your favourite research project to date and why? My gosh, there are <laughs> so many to choose from. So I think I'm going to, can I go for two rather than one? Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to talk about a couple of different projects which I found really exciting and learning. I suppose the first one I'm going to talk about is one which I suppose the best way to title this project is how many interviews are enough. Now, this is probably the question I would say that most students and indeed quite a lot of colleagues always ask, how many interviews have I got to do when collecting data using some form of semi-structured or unstructured interview and it was something I'd always been interested in trying to find out is there a research answer to this and the normal answer in the textbooks has been something along the lines of you collect data till you reach saturation and you'll know when you've got to reach saturation because you're not going to find anything new out from each subsequent interview. That didn't really tell me what to give a number to it which is what you need for planning purposes so I did a really thorough literature review to find out how many interviews were enough and discovered that other than perhaps a couple of papers, neither of which were in um, business and management, there was nothing written which actually systematically looked at how many interviews are enough 
and when does saturation occur. It's very much, um, here's my rule of thumb, this is my opinion, not a lot else. So on this piece of research, we actually, a colleague of mine, Keith Townsend, who works at Griffith University in Brisbane, we sat down and we reviewed, I think, 10 journals over a 30-year period, looking at the reporting of interviews and how many interviews they'd said that was enough and how they justified this number of interviews. And first thing we discovered was that the reporting of the number of interviews wasn't particularly good, which was interesting in its own right. We then actually started to find that whereas the limited literature which did talk about saturation and said when you'd reach saturation from outside the business world was talking about 12 to 15 interviews, the number of interviews that were in the papers we were looking at was nearly always higher. So we, why is this the case? So, and it, so basically what there was, there was a norm of what you needed to get public to get papers published versus how many interviews you actually needed to reach saturation. Also, quite a lot of detail on how to report saturation. So that was an interesting project. We ended up with a very wide estimate of how many were enough of between 15 and 30 if you're looking at one organisation and up to 50 to 60 if you're looking at multiple organisations as rough figures, but saying very much it depended on the question you were trying to answer and noting very much that Sometimes one interview is enough to answer a research question. Perhaps not something that students should take to heart too strongly because there are very, very few questions that need one interview. But more importantly, recognising the variety of different factors that impact upon this and being clear of how these factors influence and then justifying the reasoning as to why you have the number of interviews you do. So that was a fun piece of research, which I really enjoyed. And... I think the other piece which I enjoyed, because it, it built up over a number of years in terms of the methodology, but also the question, was looking at issues of trust and distrust. And within the literature, there's a large amount of literature arguing that trust and distrust are opposite. So if you, the opposite of trust is distrust and that the antecedents are therefore opposites. But there is an equally large amount of literature which says, although we define them as opposites, they have different antecedents, it seems. So they have different causes, which are not just opposites. And so that was quite an interesting question in its own right. And then as I delved into literature, people were saying, well, you could be both trusting and distrustful in the same context at the same time. So I thought, my gosh, this is a very interesting methodological question as well. How do you actually research something which is a, a sensitive issue in that people are talk, talking about whether they trust or distrust somebody in the workplace, perhaps? But also, it's also an, in, an, an issue which is quite interesting in terms of if you want to find out whether people are both trusting and distrustful at the same time, you have to be very careful not to sensitise them to the exact topic you're collecting the data on. So on this piece of research, it was a case of developing both a method to find out whether people would be both trusting and distrustful at the same time, and also develop a method which would allow to see whether the causes uh, were different rather than just opposites. Um, we developed a method which involved, amongst other things, a sorting of cards of different feelings and different antecedents of trust and ways it would, could actually be seen in practice as well as ask about trust and distrust and also then leading that into a into interviews to explain why these cards have been ranked at different rates and at the end of this paper 
we first of all we found out that people were very unlikely to be both trusted and distrustful at the same time despite the literature saying that that happened quite often and we also found out that trust and distrust were defined as opposites as the literature said but they had different factors causing them and so if you wanted to dissolve distrust you didn't have to do the same things as building trust so it was quite a useful paper in terms of the outcomes for organizations as well and a fun piece of research to do those are two very different but really interesting projects thank you and i I just want to go back to this first one this idea of how many interviews is enough because i think that's Mm. As you said, it, it's a really it's a really prevalent question when you come to students and and particularly early career researchers who might not have as much experience in doing research to understand what saturation even means. Mm, yeah, and it just it's a really important question that we we get given, and I suspect as lecturers as 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 those of us that support research, student research, we don't often give a really definitive answer. No, we don't. And we normally say, oh, well, it depends, which is not a lot of you, to be honest. And I think with that, I think the crucial thing is to think about how many interviews do I need to answer this specific question to the satisfaction of this specific group? So how many interviews do I need to be able to answer this question in that managers will believe me? Yes. How many interviews do I need to be able to answer this question that I will satisfy the person who is marking my dissertation? How many interviews do I need to be able to do to ensure I can get this paper published in this journal? And whilst it it depends, you can actually start to get to, certainly for the work we were doing in publishing journals, you do actually start to see that although there's wide variation, there are almost minimal numbers. The other thing you see is the importance of being able to justify those numbers, in particular by using saturation. But again, most journals only report it saying here is we've reached saturation and what's really needed is to show that you've actually reached saturation showing how you've coded the data and showing how no new code to come up as you move through into later interviews and then check in say you reach saturation at 12 interviews doing two or three more just to make sure there aren't any new codes Mm, i mean it sounds quite mechanistic but at the same time it's a really good way of formulating a research plan as well isn't it so you actually know how long something's going to take you it's not just how long is this piece of string it's it's having that planning in place exactly and i think the crucial thing is is to plan on how you you can't know for certain how many interviews you're going to to need to reach saturation but if you have a clear plan and you can say well research shows that i'm likely to need 10 to 15 interviews then you know what you've got to do Mm. that's really that's really interesting and something it's made me rethink how i how i talk to students about how many interviews they need to do if they're doing research interviews? I mean, the other thing is with a with a stu- student, it really depends on what they're doing the research for. I mean, for many Absolutely. for many students, they may one or two may be sufficient if that's if the assessment is about learning about how to do research, and and part of, and they're being assessed on their practice and and their ability to reflect on their own practice. So it, it, it's looking at the whole thing in the context. But for actually doing research where people may use the findings, again, sometimes one or two interviews can be enough. I mean, if you're choosing to interview an exemplar case to illustrate a theory, you don't need more than one interview. Mm, that's really interesting. So what do you think is the most important part of the research process? I would argue the most important thing of all is getting a clear question to answer. 
and be and getting that question right and sorting out your aims and objectives within that. Why is that such an important part? Right. The way I teach this with the students is I um, use the Walt Disney Alice in Wonderland video DVD where uh, where Alice goes through the looking glass and into the garden. She's walking down a path and as she gets to the a fork in a path, she stops and says, I wonder which way I should go. And um, the Cheshire cat sort of appears in this tree and says, well, it depends when you want to, where you want to end up. And Alice says, well, I don't really know. And the cat says, well, it doesn't matter which way you go then. I think having a question gives you a clear direction to your research. And without that, you can spend a large amount of time floundering. Love the Alice analogy. I think that's a really good analogy. It's fun, isn't it? It makes me, you know, it's one of those things that makes research methods really interesting rather than a bit dry. (laughs) I mean, we can take the analogies a bit further on questions. And I mean, the other one I use, which perhaps dates me a little bit but when when my own children are a bit young bit younger we used to read them the jungle book stories by kipling and there's a lovely one in there about how the elephant got got its trunk and the the story is the elephant was had a normal sized nose and went down to the river to um have a drink and and a a crocodile came and grabbed hold of his nose and then he got stretched but that's not really much use about answering research questions. But in there, there's this lovely poem which says something along, I kept myself six serving men, they served me well. Their names are who and what and why and when and how and who. So you've got all, all these ways of answering questions. With the, And so, again, if you ask a what question, it just gives you a factual type answer. Whereas if you ask why, you start to move from description into explanation. So there's lots of fun stories you can use to illustrate um, the idea of ways of asking questions as well. I love that. I I, I love the idea that you're using that because it it just it feels like you're it's lending itself to thinking about creative questions, creative ways of doing things, and research ultimately is about creativity. I think it's it's about creatively. It's about using creativity to find out. And quite often description can be enough, but really we want to, we don't just want to describe something, we want to actually understand why it's happened as well. So these why questions I think are really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of your research recently is about, or some of your sort of recent publications have been around what happens when research goes wrong. Yep. Um, which, you know, we don't like to, uh, as researchers, we don't like to think about when it goes wrong. And um, I think students tend to think about things going wrong with a state of panic um because if if you've planned research well the theory is that it shouldn't go wrong and obviously that's not always the case and most plans never survive first contact with actually imp- with actual implementation um so what advice would you give to get projects back on track once they've gone wrong i think the first thing is to recognize that research doesn't go to plan and it will it will almost certainly go wrong somewhere along the way and be so you, when it goes wrong you're prepared and it to know that it will and i think journal articles in particular do people a great disservice because what what we read in journal articles is a post hoc rationalization of what actually happened i mean how often do you read a journal article which talks about access for data and says well i was having a conversation in the pub with my mate and they said, oh, our company's doing that. Why don't you come and have a chat with us? Which is the reality of how it starts off quite often. 
and it's about and then all the network inside it so your question though was um we expected wrong what do you do first of all you 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 plan it knowing that if things go wrong what are you going to do about it so you have a a plan b in place so i'll give an example when we didn't have a plan b in place because i think that's more illustrating it's quite it's quite a fun piece of work that worked very well we were doing research a few years ago with them smes and looking at sme success and we had a contract with a company to undertake a survey with a thousand smes that meant we needed to get a thousand questionnaire responses we planned it well working on the basis of a 10 percent response rate which we thought was being very very cautious and bought a database of sme names and addresses and email addresses and contact people and and then we sent out these emails online and got way way fewer responses than we expected which is all very well in that our response rate is even lower but more more worryingly for this we weren't going to get paid either we didn't have a plan b at the time but then we worked out that we could work through other intermediaries in this case we worked with chambers of commerce who we had good contacts with and surveyed their members to collect the data using questionnaires. So we, we we recouped and got back and got our thousand responses. What we learned afterwards was that we probably weren't actually doing it the right way anymore, and we would have been much better going through a data management company who we paid so much for each questionnaire that got returned and do it that way. And on subsequent work, we did it that way, and it was a lot easier and a lot less stressful. That's really interesting. It's that you obviously you came across this problem, and you had other networks, you had other opportunities, but you just hadn't necessarily thought that they were. You hadn't thought about them in advance. No, we hadn't thought they were going to be needed, and they obviously were. We then, we then, of course, being true academics, wrote a paper about it. What about the actual having to solve the problem? Yeah, well, not only about the problem, <laughs> then how we how we solved it. <laughs> But then that's, I mean, that those kinds of papers are quite useful, aren't they, in terms mm. of what you were saying earlier, that, you know, you very rarely get an opportunity when you're reading an academic uh, journal or, or sort of research paper about what went wrong or if it went wrong, because it's always 2020 vision hindsight. It's always, yeah. it looks great in after the fact, but it's quite useful to have those examples of when things don't go well. Indeed. I mean, we've certainly been putting together quite a lot of stuff on that we did had a book out lessons from when things go wrong about how to keep your research projects on track out a couple of years ago and then more recently we've had a book out on how to keep your ph doctorate on track which looks at lessons from when things don't go perhaps to plan and in your experience what are the kind of the really common issues that students face that don't when things aren't going right what what are the kind of big stumbling blocks I think the biggest stumbling block of all relates to time management. That's time in terms of how long does it actually collect take to collect data if you're collecting your own data and massively underestimating that through to est- underestimating the amount of time it takes to analyze the data, how much time it takes to, takes to, and I use this word on purpose, rewrite your draft. And so I think if people recognise that things are going to take long and actually have a realistic plan with some slack time built in, that can help overcome a large number of problems. The other thing which is really important, as well as having that slack time to build in to catch up if needed to, is to recognise that when things go wrong, 
it's a time to reflect and what have I learned? What will I do differently? And it, you can actually write up a certainly a, a student piece of work saying this is how it, it started off, but this didn't work, and this is, and therefore I did this to actually uh, give a real insights into the whole process. That's impo- an important point, isn't it? To to be able to take that step back and reflect upon it rather than kind of panic and try and not cover it up, but kind of pretend it didn't go wrong. Yeah, exactly. I think I think there is this real tendency to cover it up because we see journal articles a lot of the time just saying it post the post hoc rationalised version. But I certainly think it's worth stopping, reflecting, and saying why did it go wrong? What have I learned? And then moving on and then explaining this was tried but didn't work, and these are the reasons. Therefore, I did this, and this did work. Yeah, it's so important. And just going back to your point on time management, I I absolutely agree because I remember probably my first major project after completing my PhD, I, I ended up doing some interviews and I massively under under considered how much time it would take to, to, to transcribe those interviews. Mm. Um, and I had a really, really clear plan in place in terms of my timings and it just didn't, it fell apart within mm. a week of completing the interviews and it was just so frustrating and it gets so demoralising. It is very much. I, and I think the other thing is that certainly students tend not to realise is when things go wrong or you're panicking, that's what you have a supervisor for, to talk to and say, help, this is going wrong, and then to talk through the ideas of how you're going to get back on track rather than sort of retreating and cutting up all contact. Yeah, it's so easy to think it's mm. going wrong. I can't talk to my supervisor about this because they'll tell me off or whatever but actually it's that's that's when you need the supervisor most that's when you need that kind of that sounding board most isn't it yeah i suppose there is one other point which that where people tend to go wrong which i think is a really important one to bring up and that is a lot a lot of students read and take notes early on and as they're taking notes if there's a really good bit they cut and paste it in and then have it in their notes because you know it's a great a great quote and it was written be- better than they believe they could write it themselves. And then when they start to write their dissertation or thesis, they look through their notes and think, "God, I wrote that well, didn't I?" Forgetting that it come from somewhere else, and they inadvertently plagiarize. That's a really good point. I just just kind of double checking when you're making notes if you're going to quote, make sure you make it really clear that it's a quote, or if you're if you reworded it make sure you're really clear that it's your words indeed and it's so easy to do it and a lot of the plagiarism cases are that they didn't realize it's just a few mistakes like that but it's still plagiarism yeah that's a really good point actually a really kind of easy tidbit to kind of have on your have on your radar when you're reading and making notes especially considering particularly when it comes to like a dissertation whether it's an undergraduate or a master's level or even especially a PhD, you end up making notes a long way in advance of actually getting to the write-up or you'll end up having going back to your notes after a quite a long period of time and you need to be really clear about how, what notes you've made, what notes you've copied and what even just why you've made those notes. Yeah, I mean, what I strongly suggest people do is if they take a direct quote, they put it in speech marks and they put the page number immediately afterwards where it came from and and the, and the reference so they've got it there from the word go it really helps the other thing with, with making notes is when you're making notes is if you disagree with a point which sometimes you do is to write why you disagree rather than just disagreeing with it yes absolutely like it, it's okay to say i think this is rubbish because in your notes 
Yeah, your, your most important word there, Suzanne, was the word because. Yes, exactly. I remember doing my PhD, I, I ended up, and I, I tell my students this as well, I ended up making a whole bunch of notes and then I forgot where I, I hadn't quite made the right notes about where I'd got these notes from. Mm. So it took me weeks to sort through all of my readings and figure out actually what the sources were. Yeah. I it, never made that mistake again. No, it's very easy to do once. <laughs> so the the last question I've got for you, um, Mark, is around this the, the piece of research or the research that you've been doing around trust and transparency. And you talked um, earlier about building trust isn't necessarily about negating distrust, which I think is a really, really important point. Um, but when it comes to doing research, what what do you mean by trust and transparency in research? When we read a research paper, we read it on the basis that the person has undertaken the research to a high a high quality standard and we base that in the journal article on the fact it's gone out to reviews and our belief in other people as quality researchers but and so that means in effect that we trust them to have done the research for want of a better word properly but the really we need need to help people to understand how we've done that research because we could have been doing that research from a positivistic mindset we could have been doing it from an interpretivist or indeed a variety of other different epistemological and axiological views so what i mean by um transparency of research is about being clear about how you collected your data and why you did it the way you did and then how you analyzed it and why you did and how that relates back to the question you're trying to answer and by doing that and being clear and explaining it, then people can actually trust the research findings. So it's really about reporting the way the research was done in sufficient detail that somebody else could come along and do the same research and replicate your method if nothing else had changed. So it's enough detail to know what you did and why you did it the way you did. That's really important in terms of thinking about the, the necessity of that rationale as well. It's not just about what you did and how you did it, but why you did it that way and what choices did you make exactly. to, to get to that point. And that's really where your um, own worldviews on your epistemology and your axiology and in, and your ontology come in. So, you know, your, your the role of your own personal values in terms of your axiology, what you consider to be um, good data in terms of your epistemology and so on. And by doing being clear about that, then people can read your own research in the way you in, you did it and in the way you intend it to be read because they understand who you are and how you're approaching that research. So there's a level of internal consistency running through as well. I love that is that you get your readers to understand a little bit about you as a person. And I think that's a really important point, isn't it? That research we think about research as possibly being objective in that it, it removes the voice of the researcher as much as possible but very often that's just not the case is it i would argue and i'm, I'm sure some positivists would disagree with me I, I would argue that it's the case for all research i mean in research i'm doing i'm doing research as a white male being educated in the uk gone to universities had a, a very privileged experiences in my life and that's invariably colored the way i see things and so I think it's important people understand that when they read what I'm saying. So, for example, we did some work a few years ago on patients' perceptions of safety and of trust in medics. 
and my co-author was a ex-nurse and so we were very clear that she'd worked as an ex-nurse and I'd worked in social care for a number of years so so we were very clear in setting out who we were and how that would impact on the research we were doing. I've, I've spoken to other researchers and it's speaking to them around how you you create that trust and transparency with your participants so mm. that kind of disclosure with your participants but as you said it's, it's also about kind of the wider who's reading it mm. you know demonstrating how you've interpreted this data but also making sure that your your readers understand from the perspective from which you're coming at the research i mean we hopefully we do our research because we want to actually have an impact with what we do in terms of people's knowledge and understand whatever we're looking at and so if we we need to make it in such a way that people can trust what we've done and if there are issues we need to be open up front about them absolutely mark those are all the questions i had for you and you've answered them beautifully so thank you very much but i wonder if you'd be willing to answer one more that i haven't uh uh, pre-sent to you yeah of course because it's it's just it's just occurred to me some of the work that you've done and a lot of the publications that you've done have been specifically about research methods and doing research rather than the research itself. So the, mm. the process of research. And I just wondered why you're so interested in writing those kinds of works or doing that kind of work as a, as a fellow research methods person. <laughs> My interest in methods started as an undergraduate. And I can remember we were taught about questionnaire design. And I can remember thinking, gosh, so I could design a questionnaire in different ways and I can get different answers. That is really fascinating. And then you start to think, well, that means if you want to find things out, you can do it to influence the answer or you can do it to try and get as close to what the person you're asking the question of actually believes. And so there was an initial fascination in terms of understanding how you could influence answers and then wanting to try and find out a truth or one of multiple truths or people's own interpretations. And then discovering that it was very difficult to find much that had been written upon that, especially early on when I started, but being and finding that from a student perspective, it was seen as a deadly boring module. <laughs> and actually thinking this is really exciting i just need to all i need to be able to do to get amazing reviews to show people this is really great and just be half decent <laughs> and what i discovered was that when you actually show students how amazing it the subject is in terms of being able to find out and how little changes can have such massive impacts and bring into the reality of things like the fact that when the the um, brexit question came out the initial brexit question was disliked by the people who wanted to leave and they asked for it to be changed and it was and that made a difference in responses of about one and a half percent which is what the brexit people won by isn't that a fascinating thing about why methods is important it is isn't it um or you and there's just little, little things about the way you ask questions and the difference things how they're positioned on a page and I found all that absolutely fascinating for its own sake but what really fa- excites me is actually we're in a fantastically privileged position as academics in that we're teaching the people who are going to be the future. And if we can teach them to actually be able to ask questions well to actually get answers which can be trusted and then to be able to interpret those data fairly or to be able to interpret them with credibility, haven't we done a fantastic thing for the future? 
that is a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. I'm a massive research methods nerd, so I, you know, all of that kind of stuff really resonates with me. <laughs> you get it then. It, 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 I just think it's a fun. I mean, I, I'm one of the people who was sad enough when our, my kids were young to be lying on the beach reading research methods papers. Quite <laughs> I don't know. To me, that sounds like a very relaxing holiday. It is. It's brilliant. But you know, <laughs> there's another one I've just read recently, a book called Dark Emu which has taken the data as written by the first settlers of white settlers of Australia, their descriptions of how they saw the Aboriginal peoples or the indigenous population and how they interpret that data as the indigenous population as being savage nomads, when in fact you can interpret the same data and uh, that these people were actually very sophisticated people, husband in a, a very fragile ecosystem. It's all about interpretation. Yeah. And looking at the data, and, and but also understanding what the baggage you bring to that data. Yes, that's a good point, isn't it? Like, what what are you bringing to what you're reading? What are you, what world views are you kind of using to shape your interpretation of something? Yeah, the role of self. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. That's, I really appreciate that. That's been a really interesting conversation. Um, that's right. I've enjoyed it, Suzanne. It's always great to talk research, and I've looked forward to seeing the podcast. 